begin this morning with a question. And that question is this. Do you know God? And do you know yourself? The beginning of John Calvin's institute of the Christian religion began with these two subjects that he described them as the entire sum of true wisdom. The reality, he argues, is that we cannot know ourselves rightly if we do not first have the right view of God, which explains why self-knowledge in the world's eyes, a world that is fallen and idolatrous, usually leads to self-praise. We humans love to be flattered. We love to be praised. We love to be relied upon. We love to be seen with and viewed with by esteem. But the call to us in Scripture is just the opposite. The Bible instead demands and, and helps us to see the truth that there is nothing good, nothing admirable, nothing meritorious in ourselves by nature, but only misery. So that we, finding no hope in ourselves or the world, are driven to look to the Lord Jesus for deliverance and to rely upon Him alone, who is our only hope in life and death. So, the verses we'll be looking at this morning are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 26 to 31. You can turn there. And while you're turning there, just as a Preparatory note um, before we dive into the text that most of you are probably aware of the four gospels. Um, this one by Mark is the shortest and, and no doubt the most fast paced in the way he writes uh, of the life and earthly ministry of Christ. One of the central themes for Mark is highlighting the identity of Jesus uh, as the God man through his miraculous work. And also highlighting the teachings of Christ and how they emphasize the call to discipleship and fellowship with him. So really quick, just to go over the flow of events in Mark 14, if you have that in front of you, to see what's going on. First, we see that Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. And it is there in the upper room where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. From there, Jesus foretells the disciples' abandonment, specifically mentioned Peter's denial. Then the events of Jesus praying in Gethsemane, and then the chapter closes with the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. So if you haven't already, again, please turn to chapter 14, Mark, verses 26. It says, And when they had sung in him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, 
I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, Now, first glance, this passage kind of makes you think, well, great, here we go with uh, big, brave Peter again, uh, saying something he shouldn't have said. But hopefully, as we examine this text more closely, we'll see the danger of looking down on the disciples for their failures and slip-ups as if we would have done better if we were in their position. So as we look at this text, I want us to focus on how our propensity to underestimate our sinfulness and overestimate our loyalty and commitment to Christ comes from a failure to examine ourselves properly, which in turn not only makes us more susceptible to falling and sinning, but also causes us to miss out on being comforted by the promises of God. Not only this, I hope we ultimately rest uh, in the fact that Christ is always faithful toward his beloved, even when his sheep are unfaithful. The three points for this sermon today, the first is titled, Missing the Memo, and the second is titled, Watchful Resting. The first, Missing the Memo. There are many things in Scripture that we as Christians have uh, very few problems understanding and even applying to our lives, given that we're relying on the Holy Spirit and uh, the support and instruction of, of other believers. Yet there are also a number of things taught in Scripture that we tend to struggle uh, with understanding. Or if we understand it conceptually, we, we have difficulty in making marks when it comes to application. I would argue one of these things is self-examination, which in preparing for this sermon, I realized how awful I am at self-examination, how poorly I understand it myself and apply it. But if you ask the average Christian if they can define self-examination or if they do it regularly themselves, you'd likely get a variety of answers. The reality is that there are dangers when we deal with self-examination are questions that need to be answered. First, what is it biblically? How do we do it correctly? How often should we self-examine? What's the point of self-examination? Now, we're not going to answer all these questions uh, in one sermon, but as we'll see in this text, Christ's disciples can benefit greatly and do benefit greatly from self-examination when done rightly. Now, if it can be done correctly, uh, then it can certainly be done incorrectly or poorly. One of the dangers that some make is to constantly look inward so that you're led to despair and only despair, stuck in the mud of your own failures so that, so much so that you forget to look uh, for the remedy that is found in Christ. To the point where every time you slip up or fall into sin, you doubt your salvation, and you think that the Lord can't use you at all, you can't serve the Lord at all, completely forgetting the bottomless ocean of mercy and forgiveness that is found in the gospel, completely forgetting that you're no longer condemned by the law and under the dominion of sin, forgetting that Christ died for not the righteous, but for sinners. 
desires and thoughts are all corrupted by sin. To the point where, as we'll see in this text, we begin to think that the Lord can trust us and rely on us, forgetting the fact that the Lord is the only one worthy of trust and the only one we can truly rely upon. The only one who never fails us. And so looking here, beginning at verse 26, we read that Jesus and the disciples have just sung him, and we see that they are on the mountain of olives. And Jesus says to the disciples, We will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, first, why would Jesus even say this? Where does it come from? Um, since he clearly says, For it is written, meaning that should be our hint.
the unchanging election of God, his love and mercy, they cannot fall away totally or entirely. So in this context, Jesus clearly means that the disciples will stumble into sin and abandon him for a time. And in our next point, we'll discuss uh, even the comfort that the disciples missed in this warning. But we'll focus in on verse 28 now, where Jesus follows up this concerning announcement of the promise. He says, following, he says the following with confidence and without a doubt in his mind, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And now we get to, to Peter's response. In this. And what is his response? Surely he, he responds with fear and trembling and, and a humble recognition of his depraved heart and sinful inclinations and how he would surely stumble if it were not for the sustaining grace of our Lord. Right. Now, Peter says to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I will not. In reality, this is the natural response of all of us apart from a proper understanding of our own hearts, which comes from the Holy Spirit as we see our sinfulness in the mirror of God's holy law and then distrusting ourselves. We look to Christ, the merciful and plentiful Savior, as he is revealed in the gospel. So again, Peter's response here is, is really a natural one. It's common for for younger uh, believers and disciples in particular as, as they haven't really you know, come to an understanding of just how sinful they really are. They may understand conceptually the depths of their sin, but haven't uh, quite experienced that reality in their Christian walk just yet, uh, at least to the extent that they would be suspicious of themselves. The reality is everyone wants to do great things for the Lord. Everyone wants to be faithful to Him, which is good. That's a, that's a good thing. However, for many, the seed of sincere affection begins to grow and, and bear the fruits of pride and self-confidence. What I mean by this is the sincere desire to please the Lord and serve Him can slowly become a cover-up for trying to our worth to the Lord or prove to him or to others that uh, our profession of faith was genuine. We really meant it. And we aren't one of those fake Christians. The admirable thought that the Lord can use me for his glory soon becomes the Lord needs me and can rely on me. And I'm going to outdo the next Christian by doing great and radical things for the Lord while they stick to doing those ordinary things that really anyone can do, and Jesus will surely be impressed by my ability. Now, these things uh, won't be said out loud, likely, um, but those are the thoughts and the desires that the devil loves to fan into flame when we forget the weakness of our flesh and our propensity to fall into sin. And Peter should have known this, considering that we read in Luke's account that Jesus warned the disciples of their great enemy, Satan, who demanded to have them and sift them like wheat, meaning to cause them to fall away from Jesus. But what does 
united to the Lord Jesus 
by faith alone. Both believers and unbelievers are capable of missing the memo like the disciples did as we just went over. Additionally, believers and unbelievers are capable of examining themselves to an extent, seeing their inner wretchedness, uh, if you will, and despairing. But for unbelievers, missing the memo or despairing are all they can do because they are dead in sin and hardened in their hearts. They will by nature pridefully rely on themselves, seeing no need to look outside of themselves for anything. And so their navel-gazing will either produce more pride or deepen their despair. And in turn, that will just add to their growing pile of sin before a holy God. But not so for the one who has trusted in Christ alone for salvation. For despite our propensity to sin and fall short, there is always the ability by God's grace to trust and obey. The words of Jesus in, in John 15 prove true here again. That apart from him, we can do nothing. For those in Christ united to him by faith, we draw from him all life and power and grace, even as the branches grow and bear fruit by growing from the source that is the vine. So looking back at this passage, notice that Jesus is fully aware of the fact that his disciples are weak in faith and in knowledge, that they will fall away from him shortly, and yet he still sees them as his and he doesn't leave them or, or give them any reason to believe that he would do such a thing. When Jesus chose these disciples, he was not looking for those who were the most learned or the most righteous or the most strong. Um, and a quick read through any of the four Gospels would be a reminder of that fact. And that should be a comfort for us as well. Christ's patience his own is incomprehensible. We cannot even, even fathom his patience toward us because we are so weak in faith and so very impatient with our own circumstances and the people around us. It should cause us to marvel that despite knowing his disciples will fall away and despite knowing that we today will fall short and sin again on this side of glory, his love for his own never changes. I love this quote by John Owen. He says, It is because Christ's love is fixed and unchangeable that he shows us infinite patience and forbearance. As already noted, the disciples missed this comfort in what Jesus foretold in verse 28, that he doesn't merely say that he will rise again, but specifically that he will go before them to Galilee. In other words, our Lord says to the disciples, though I'm going to be struck in the place of my shoes, that won't be the end of it. I will rise again, and I won't abandon you, even though you will abandon me. In fact, I'll gather you, scattered sheep, again to myself in Galilee. I'll take you again as my companions and brothers, so that you may see and know yet again that I'm worthy of your trust. That despite your unfaithfulness, I will remain faithful 
you because I have called you my own. So take heart and remember this when the time comes. And what a beautiful picture this is of the gospel, which for us today, as it is for saints in all ages, is a reminder of the faithfulness of Christ on behalf of those who could never attain or come close to perfect faithfulness themselves. Now, at the same time, we shouldn't be mistaken, because Christ's love and patience for his own is certainly no license for us to do whatever we want and expect to get away without consequences. Rather, the very fact that he loves us so immensely is the reason he doesn't leave us the way we are when we first come to faith. Rather, he conforms us by his spirit into his own holy image. And part of this process what we call progressive sanctification, as we're all a little more familiar with, now that we've spent many weeks going through it in Sunday schools, involves a growing clarity and understanding of our own sinfulness and weakness, as well as, on the flip side, a growing clarity and understanding of the mercy and grace of God in His gospel. And both of these understandings are crucial aspects of biblical self-examination. In a moment. So looking at verse 27, let's discuss how the disciples could have and should have responded to this. And their first response, I would argue, should have been to trust Jesus, knowing his proven trustworthiness in the past. And they should have heeded his warning with this would in turn lead to the self-examination we touched on uh, at the beginning of this sermon, which for believers should never cause one to doubt their salvation, nor should it cause one to be impressed with their ability. I'll say that again. For believers, self-examination should never cause one to doubt their salvation, nor should it cause one to be impressed with their ability. It's fairly well known um, that before he became the leading voice of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk, um, during which time he would daily examine himself, or really scrutinize himself, in order to confess every single sin he committed in a day. Sins private and sins public, and even perceived instances of sin against others, he would fast nearly to the point of passing out. He would expose his body to brutal temperatures and conditions, really leaving the other monks at the monastery to think he was insane and leaving himself to deeper and deeper despair and terror of God's displeasure to the point where at that time he said he hated God. His self-examination was law-based and law-driven, and law ended, which will always lead to despair because there is no gospel of rest. After coming to Christ, he would come to a more assured building and Christ-centered understanding of self-examination, wherein the law of God and the gospel of God would be used and seen by faith. And that is what I'd like to know for us here this morning. Rather than beating oneself to death on one end of the spectrum 
and on the other end, ignoring the needs of selfish families altogether, there's the middle ground, if you will, that by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, looks at the state of one's heart without bias, in accordance with the Word of God, and then looks to Christ Jesus, whose person works for us, and allows us to glory of reality is the proper end of all self-pity and management in the Christian life. Now this is both a private endeavor and a corporate one, depending on the situation. Of course, as one lives in fellowship with other believers in the church or the body of Christ. If in this instance, Peter and his disciples had pleaded to God for help in seeing themselves plainly and, and looked inward at their hearts in light of this prediction by Christ, they could have seen the weakness and propensities of sin that lies within them instead of responding with rash zeal and this fake bravery. And seeing by God's grace the pride and self-righteousness dwelling in the chamber of their hearts, they could have and would have despaired. They called out to God in prayer for help and strength. And this is as one reformed commentator notes, the proper response to being warned of our frailty and inability. Namely, sighing and groaning over the weakness of our hearts and seeking God's holy protection in prayer. Now, to be clear, and going back to what I said earlier about the difference in ability between an unbeliever and a believer, this calling out to God can only be done if one has faith in him. That he is not only able to help, but he is willing to help those who cry out to him in faith, knowing with certainty that his helping hand is at your disposal to do what you can. Because he tells us in his word that he delights in caring for his children. Enough to jump ahead, but I guess to jump ahead to the next verses that follow this. But you see how prayer is inseparable from watching. Jesus will soon after this be in the garden of Gethsemane, taking John and Peter and James aside and telling them to watch or keep awake. Now, in the immediate, in the immediate context, uh, this, of course, has physical implications, but it also has spiritual implications as uh, we will see throughout the events that unfold here and in the rest of the epistle. And I'm simply thinking mainly of Ephesians 6, which Pastor John will get to in a couple of years, where Paul tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual adversaries. And after exhorting believers to take up their God-given spiritual armor, he ends with calling them to pray and keep alert. So we see there is a necessity in the Christian life to watch and to pray. And that is because the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly trying to cause us to forget Christ and uh, dishonor him. And all of this requires serious work, often hard work. But don't be deceived into thinking or believing for a moment that you are alone or it's up to you to examine yourself and watch properly 
for us to be involved forever. Rather, as children of God, we have received the spirit of adoption, and not only this, but to look again to the parallel account in Luke 22, we have a mighty advocate and high priest interceding for us at the Father's right hand. And as one uh, Puritan usually put it, while the devil is daily prowling and the flesh is daily raging, and while the world is daily facing, Christ, our King and friend, is daily interceding for us. Now, before we land, I'm going to touch on one final thing. The reason I titled this portion of the sermon in this way is because prayer and watching is not separate from or opposite to resting. Additionally, we cannot truly rest as long as it's lying on ourselves. So what does it mean to rest? We know spiritually speaking it doesn't mean to sit back and do nothing. Yet it is the very, it's part of the very nature of saving faith. Trusting and resting are synonymous. And that the believer who trusts in Christ for salvation thereby finds rest for their soul. Rest from the brutal enslavement to sin now that it's been broken through the cross. Rest from the constant dread of God's judgment now that it's been satisfied. Rest from the toiling and striving to earn God's favor because it's been earned by Christ on our behalf. Rest from the fear of death because death has been killed through the death of Christ the Lord's life. Resting in Christ also means that we can find comfort and confidence in Him even when we fail. We all know what follows these verses in Scripture. In verse 50 of this chapter, we see that all the disciples left Jesus and fled. Following that, we see Peter, the one who trusted in his own strength and faith rather than watching and resting, denies his Lord three different times just to avoid persecution or death by association with Christ. And as Peter was weeping, uh, the, the scriptures say the thought came to mind of what Christ had just predicted a few hours before. And to use a, a bit of sanctified imagination, I wonder if perhaps Peter also remembered what Christ had said while teaching the disciples a while back about overcoming fear in the midst of persecution. Didn't Jesus say at that time that those who deny him before men, he will also deny before his Father in heaven? And this is what is so counter to, to human reasoning about the love and, and mercy of our Lord and shame on us for thinking that the Lord is anything like us. That when we see both of these verses and we try to mash them together, we try to put them together, we'd expect wrath and judgment to come upon Peter at that moment. We would expect him to be denied by Christ even as he denied Christ three different times. 
However, our Lord showed mercy through his weak and failing disciples. Some perhaps who share a pre converted Martin Luther like view of Jesus would expect him to come to Peter after the resurrection and scold him for his denial and unfaithfulness. And perhaps some of, some of us who are believers here this morning, we hear the same when we against him. But what is it that, that really happened? In verse 16 of Mark, sorry, chapter 16 of Mark, verse 7, the angel at the empty tomb tells the women there to go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. And I love what a saint by the name of William Gurnall says about the mercy and tenderness of Christ in this verse. He says, Peter was the only disciple to whom Christ sent the joyful news of his resurrection by name. As if he said, oh, be sure to comfort Peter with this news. I want him to know that I am still his friend despite his cowardice. And we see the first words the Lord Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples after he died and was raised as it's recorded in scripture. He comes to them and says, peace be with you. And for those of us in Christ, brothers and sisters, he says the same of us. We will, by God's grace, grow in holiness, but we will also sin and fail every day. We may very well grow in our gospelized self-examination as we're being sanctified by the Spirit, but we will never be perfect. And ultimately, even our self-examination will need to be repented of in life. Our hearts in this world are still tainted by sin, and as God's children, we hate the fact that we continue to sin. But there is hope for sinners like us. There is hope in the gospel, which we need to be reminded of daily. There is hope in the perfect and sinless life of Jesus. There is hope in his sin atoning death and cleansing his blood, hope in his glorious resurrection and ascension, and hope in his continued work of intercession before the Father and on behalf. So as we watch and pray against temptation and sin, as we grow in our distrust of our own hearts through self-examination, may we rest our souls on the Lord Jesus Christ gospel again and again and again until we see him face to face in glory. And for those uh, listening this morning who have never repented of their sin and sought refuge in Christ by faith, may the Holy Spirit enable you today to see the darkness and hopelessness that dwells in your heart so that you would turn and come to Jesus who is our only hope and comfort in life and death, who has never and will never turn away any who come to him for rest.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, your word that saves, your word that sanctifies your people by the power of your spirit. Lord, we confess before you our failure to self-examine the sin we are all guilty of. And we're thankful, Lord, uh, for the gospel. We're thankful, Lord Jesus, for your perfect life, your perfect obedience. We're thankful for your cleansing blood. We're thankful for your glorious resurrection. We're thankful for the fact that you continually pray for us, that our faith may not fail. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit this morning and the rest of this week and in reality the rest of our lives to watchfully rest in this life against sin and temptation, to be watchful against our own hearts and desires, to obey your word and rest in the fact that it is finished and you, Lord Jesus, have accomplished all of these things for us in our stead as our great shepherd. Lord, we love you. 